identity factors, you know, which include not only race, but also gender, in some cases, uh, sexual identity, national origin, and also in some cases, religion, uh, will really help to uh, give a fuller picture about what's going on on the web and in various digital domains. And so that's something I would absolutely encourage every, you know, web science practitioner to do. Uh, first of all, to read up on it, to figure out, you know, how to integrate that effectively into the work they're already doing. Uh, and then secondly, of course, to, uh, to implement that knowledge. Welcome to this episode of Untangling the Web, a podcast of the Web Science Trust. I am Noshir Contractor, and I will be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in thought leaders to explore how the web is shaping society and how society in turn is shaping the web. You just heard our guest today, Dean Freelon, talking about why identity is key to understanding the complex interplay between the web and society. Dean is an associate professor in the School of Media and Journalism at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. His research covers two major areas of scholarship, political expression through digital media, as well as data science and computational methods for analyzing large digital data sets. He has authored or co-authored more than 30 journal articles, book chapters, and public reports, in addition to editing a scholarly book. He has also served as principal investigator on grants from the Knight Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the U.S. Institute of Peace. Professor Freelon has been at the forefront of research into misinformation, disinformation, hyperpartisan content, ideological asymmetry, identity politics, and personalized information environments. And as a member of the web science community, Dean writes lots of software to analyze data, some of which he releases in open source spaces. Welcome, Dean. Thanks. I'm so glad that you're able to join us here today. I have been a huge fan of your work for a long time. Let me first begin by asking you, how did you first get interested in studying the web? I've always been a bit of a nerd. My dad was an early adopter of computers. I learned how to do web pages when I was in high school. This is mid-90s. I went to college thinking that I was going to be a computer science major, but I <laughs> I was at Stanford at the time, and I found that the way they taught it wasn't quite my speed, so I, I sort of pulled back and I majored in psychology. Later, I taught myself how to do PHP in my first job, which was as a technology trainer at Duke University, which is in my hometown. And at the same time I was teaching myself how to code, I was also becoming more politically aware, right? So this is around the time, 2002-2003, I started the Iraq War and all of that. So the code piece and political piece were happening right around the same time. And so it was only later that I realized, wow, I kind of had these two pieces of my eventual scholarly identity that were percolating and evolving at the same time. And this is actually before the field of, of communication studies and probably web science as well starts to become aware of computational methods and data science as a key component of, uh, of both of those. And so really it was kind of serendipity that I ended up having those skills and those interests at a time when those fields were, were starting to value those and starting to promote them. Well, I think we're all very lucky for that serendipity because you really were the right person at the right time. And one of the things that I really admire about your work, Dean, over the years is that you've taken issues and been able to capture it in a way that advances intellectual insights, but also speaks to a larger public. And you've done this in an amazing way in your scholarship as well as your public engagement. Talk a little bit about how you began to think about these issues. I'll throw a couple of recent papers that you've written. You have a paper called False Equivalencies, Online Activism from Left to Right. 
Tell us a little bit about what this false equivalence is and why it might be going against the grain of some conventional wisdom that we might be listening to in this area. That paper is really the, the culmination of a lot of thoughts that I've had over the past, I don't know, probably half a decade at least. And the false equivalency is between the left and right. So you have a lot of work on the left that has really come from, and we talk about this in the paper, from kind of the hashtag activism school, right? So it's, you know, there's a lot of work on, you know, Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of work on, you know, the climate change movement in terms of their use of hashtags. And so there is one view of the left, and actually that connects to prior work that's not computational web science in nature, primarily in sociology and in communication, that in which the left has overwhelmingly been focused on when, you, when you're talking about social movements, social activism. And you've got work on the right that really comes out of the, of the tradition of sort of the right-wing media ecosystem, which of course long predates the web, right, going back all the way back to the 30s, but you know, really intensifies the 1980s with a, the sort of mistrust of the mainstream media that dates back decades as well. And so those sort of very divergent research traditions, um, I thought were, were really interesting and important to look at in contrast in that piece. And so that's really what it does. It tries to figure out you know, how the left does business as far as activism goes, how the right does business, what similarities are there. They're both online. They both use many of the same social media platforms. What differences are there? The literature tells us that, for example, disinformation is a much bigger problem on the right than it does is on the left. The issue that we identify in the piece, or one of the issues we identify, is that there hasn't been that much research on disinformation on the left. So there's a couple of possibilities. One possibility is the research record reflects reality, right? Disinformation is a bigger problem on the right than it is on the left. Another possibility is that uh, because there hasn't been quite as much research done on disinformation on the left, we simply don't know. What we call for in that piece is to try to figure out exactly what is going on as far as disinformation on the left goes. Searching through the literature, we didn't really find that there were that many attempts to e even answer the question. What we're advocating for is an affirmative answer to this question of how much disinformation there really is uh, in terms of left-wing, left-leaning or uh, left-oriented so that we can characterize it against the disinformation that we know is rampant on the right. Dean, why do you think there hasn't been more studies that have tried to examine disinformation on the left? That's a good question. I think some of the disinformation may not be quite as out there. I think, as we saw in terms of the events of January 6th, there is a very strong argument to be made that the disinformation on the right, apart from how much of it there is, I think that the character of it is a lot more virulent and more likely to result in injury and harm to bodies specifically, as well as to democratic norms. And so I think there's a greater urgency there simply because of that. However, I do think it's more than a mere scholarly curiosity in terms of characterizing the nature of disinformation that may appeal to the left as compared to that which appeals to the right. We simply haven't done that work. I think it's analytically important. I think it has public importance as well. Some of it may have to do with the political commitments of the people who do the research. I don't, I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to cast aspersions on anyone who does that kind of work. And I certainly don't know enough about their political commitments to be able to say definitively, that's just how you know, confirmation bias and, and sort of you know, motivated reasoning tend to work. This is something that again, extends uh, from a research tradition that extends um, at least until the 60s you know, the studies of the civil rights movement being kind of the paradigmatic social movement. And even if you look at some of the definitions of social movement, some of it actually has, almost seems to have left-wing politics built into it. And so I, I don't think that's a great idea, but I do think that some of the uh, analytical pieces of this also play a role in determining what gets categorized as a quote unquote social movement and what is studied as, you know, reactionary politics or, or, or mainstream politics uh, because they're practiced by people of, of uh, different ideological commitments.
So you're not making a conspiracy argument. You're just saying that this is a scientific curiosity that needs to be balanced across the left and the right. Yeah, I really try not. I really try to stay away from any and all conspiracies. Uh, <laughs> I do think that, and you know, uh, in that review, I think we're doing what good reviews do, which is to point out, you know, gaps in the literature to say, we've done a really good job over here. We haven't done quite as much work over here. So let's, you know, balance the scales a little bit. One of the things that uh, obviously is front and center on many of our minds these days, especially in the United States, is the Black Lives Matter movement. And I want you to talk a little bit about your piece that was titled Black Trolls Matter, Racial and Ideological Asymmetries in Social Media Disinformation. Sure. Well, I, I want to give uh, credit for that title to the wonderful uh, Jeff Hancock of Stanford University. That piece really grew out of my work on Black Lives Matter. I, I did a report on it, public report that came out in 2016, and a follow-up empirical article a couple of years after that. And so that actually was one of the, my big entree uh, into the world of online disinformation, because I had this big Black Lives Matter data set. And when the uh, Internet Research Agency Russian troll list of handles came out at the end of 2017, I basically just looked into my Black Lives Matter data set and said, wow, there's like 300, there's 300, you know, some names from this data set represented in my Black Lives Matter data set. So I said, okay, well, this is definitely something I have to study because they seem to have some interest in activism, specifically Black activism. And that piece of research that you, that you mentioned is really the culmination uh, of that uh, uh, investigation. What we found was that uh, Black presenting uh, Russian trolls were actually more likely than any other of the categories that we looked at, which included right-wing trolls, non-black left-wing tro trolls, and a couple of other ones. They were more likely to pull in uh, retweets, replies, and likes on a per-tweet basis. And we thought that was quite remarkable, especially because the study design allowed us to disaggregate the influence of ideology from race. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What does it mean to be able to disambiguate race from ideology and also if you could just recap again, what exactly was the asymmetry in the social media disinformation that you found? We rely on that study on uh, categories that came from a couple of researchers out of uh, Clemson University. They came up with a really great initial typology. They lumped together Black left-wingers and non-Black left-wingers. And so based on some theory that we detail in the piece, we uh, made the theoretical argument for disaggregating those. We found out that a substantial amount of the effect for likes, retweets, and replies that were attributed initially to left-leaning were actually explained by Black presenting, right? And so that we found was a very, very strong indicator that the Black uh, presentation was actually driving a lot, of, a significant uh, portion of the effect. That's where the asymmetry comes from. The asymmetry between left and right being uh, more effectively explained by race than by ideology um, and also the asymmetry between being sort of non-Black left-wing as well as between uh, Black uh, left-leaning. That is incredibly interesting because it's so easy for us to conflate some of these uh, in our stereotypes. And I'm going to ask you a more general question. Do you make a distinction between disinformation and misinformation? If you look at our piece uh, that ran in political communication last year, disinformation as political communication is co-authored with, uh, with my grad school colleague, Chris Wells. And we talk about disinformation as being false or misleading content that is intentionally spread to damage a uh, third party. So that is where the person spreading it is aware of the deceptive nature of what they're spreading. And they're doing it with a specific goal uh, of damaging some enemy. Misinformation is where content is spread 
without knowledge on the part of the spreader that it's false or that there is some deceptive element to it. And so what that uh, actually implies is that dis and misinformation are not necessarily inherent qualities of the content itself, but rather they are relations between the people who spread them and the content. And so by that definition, then the two pieces that you wrote about Russia, uh, one titled the Russian disinformation campaign on Twitter and the other about Russia's internet research agency. Tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this particular issue and what were some of the key takeaways for you? I feel that my interest in disinformation is sort of charitably achieved through my interest in social movements and in the way that uh, a lot of the most prominent disinformation, including the IRA and others, have really tried to glom onto existing social movements to be able to spread their falsehoods. And so I think that is something that is a logical outgrowth of, outgrowth of the work that I've done. A, a lot of the work that I, that I have done in this has really stuck close to the sort of the relationship between disinformation and social movements, because that's something I've been interested in since I was a grad student. And, and you find that in, in the case of the Russian disinformation campaign, one of the things that uh, you argue, which again is uh, counter to the conventional wisdom, is that the disinformation campaign on Twitter targeted political communities from across the spectrum, not just from the left, as some in the media would have us believe. The Internet Research Agency, which was a very specific group uh, of paid Russian trolls that were paid by the uh, Russian government, targeted uh, not only you know folks in the black community or on the left, they also targeted folks on the right. And in one of the studies, the, the study that was published in the Misinformation Review, my uh, colleague Tanya Lokot and I point out that um, the specific identity that the IRA agents took on was the same identity of the people that they actually wanted to reach. So conservative presenting trolls wanted to reach conservatives, black presenting uh, trolls mostly reached black individuals, left presenting trolls reached out to and actually ultimately reached left-leaning individuals. So in some ways, uh, that's actually helpful analytically to understand exactly what they're doing. They're playing on this, this uh, idea that most of us who study social media and uh, web, web science uh, understand, which is that, you know, like follows like, right? Birds of a feather flock together. And so they're really taking advantage of that specific uh, tendency uh, on the internet and social media to be able to reach out to folks uh, and have the uh, real individuals who share those political identities to carry forth their disinformation for them. And that's one of the main ways that they're able to get traction is to have real people sharing, retweeting and engaging with their content, which gives it that imprimatur of uh, reality. And what was interesting is that you suggest that the best way to counter that, or at least one way to counter the Russian disinformation campaign, would be for people from across the political spectrum to collaborate against it. Tell us more about that. That was, in all honesty, a bit of a pipe dream, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're pretty we're pretty polarized, I think, in our country uh, right now. But I think if there are, I, I think if there are opportunities to do that. I think it would be a great thing. Um, I, I don't know anybody who openly proclaims that having, you know, uh, foreign agents infiltrating our political conversations is a good thing. So it seems to me, at least in principle, to be uh, something where people from differing uh, sections of the political spectrum could come together and agree at least that this is a bad thing and we should uh, find ways to uh, to combat it. So now, in terms of how likely that is, I don't really know. Yes, we are living in rather hyper-polarized times, as you might put it. You did a project that has been going on for a period of time called The Filter Map. Tell us more about uh, where that project started and where it is now. 
The Filter Map is the name of a piece that came out. I was commissioned to write this piece by the Knight Foundation, um, and it came out in 2018. And in that piece, I sort of take issue with some of the conversations that were occurring around ideas of the echo chamber and the filter map. The idea at the time was, oh, well, people really need to engage with content that lies outside of their own bubble, right? So it's it's content that uh, is produced by people who disagree with them. They need to uh, engage across ideological lines. And my contribution to the conversation is, there are certain ideas that it is not fruitful for us to engage with, right? So if you're talking about you know open racism, open sexism, you know uh, Nazism, things of this nature, these aren't ideas that we should give the time of day to, so to speak. And so uh, what I try to do in the piece is I try to articulate the kinds of ideas that we disagree with that we may want to give the time of day to and, and those kinds of ideas that we may not want to. And so the idea behind the filter bubble is to say whether you agree with something is sort of one aspect of your relationship to an idea. A second aspect is if you've decided you disagree with something, whether it lies beyond the pale of things that you would at least consider uh, is a second factor. And so um, that general set of ideas kind of sat on the shelf for a little bit uh, until uh, I, I was lucky enough with three of my colleagues to be able to receive one of the, the big uh, Knight Foundation Center Endowing grants in uh, 2019. And at that time, I realized that I had an opportunity to put the ideas in this filter map into practice. So I've collapsed it into uh, two dimensions. And so one dimension is if you think about this horizontally, left versus right. So there's been a lot of progress uh, in the past few, year, few years in terms of um, ideologically scaling uh, media personalities, media outlets, and uh, uh, Twitter handles, things like that. So you can think about that as being scaled on a horizontal axis, as well as on a vertical axis that would look at things like the total number of you know ratings that you get on PolitiFact, right? So if you're high truth, you're up here. You're low truth, you're down here. Right, so, and now you've got two axes that shows left, right, one, high truth, low truth, up and down. And you can actually look at your own social media feed and see how much of each quadrant you actually get. So if you think about above board where you're high truth, that's where you're seeing the kind of content that you want to engage with. Oh, here's the high truth right wing stuff. Okay, let's think about that. Let's engage with that. And if, and if it's low truth, well, it's low truth and it's on my side, that's maybe disinformation that's trying to target me. That's where I'm most vulnerable. And that's what I want to keep out of my information stream. My, my hope is that that will help people understand their social media feeds better. Um, and it'll help put some of this uh, heady, you know, theoretical stuff into practice in a way that ideally makes people's lives a little bit better. This is an example of how you make your scholarship very actionable or potentially actionable by individuals in terms of giving them something to look at. You've also contributed by way of sharing code and your so software tools that you've developed, et cetera. Tell us about why you chose to do that and um, what do you see as the challenges and opportunities for people in the web science community to be sharing their code? Well, I first started sharing my code when I was a grad student. And actually the very first thing I shared is by far the most popular thing I've ever shared. And that is uh, Recal, which is an online intercoded reliability calculator for content analysis. So uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of fun uh, for, for me uh, and I think useful for many people. In many ways, the success of that project, uh, which was really just an offshoot of my master's thesis. I mean, the, the short version of the story was that um, before Recal, the primary uh, intercode reliability uh, program was something called PRAM and it only ran on Windows. And I had a Mac and you know, I, I did my grad work in Seattle. And uh, if you know, Seattle is very rainy. And so when I was doing my, my uh, intercode reliability tests for my master's thesis, I didn't want to walk from my apartment all the way to the lab 
in uh, the University of Washington Communication <laughs> Department. So I said, well, I'll just make one myself and program this thing, literally do the math myself. They sort of prettied it up and made it usable for others uh, when I put it on my website. So the success of that really led to uh, other, um, you know, sort of forays into writing software for the research community. I think it's incredibly important. I think of how I personally have benefited from other people's software that they've created um, that's been on an open source basis. And I just want to give back a little bit to that. One issue I find that I think hampers uh, people from, from doing this is that, especially outside of computer science and perhaps information science, the production of open source software for the research community is often not seen as mu as as much of a uh, contribution as it should be. You've talked, we've talked about sharing code. Uh, what about sharing data? You were involved as part of the beta test that Twitter has offered to make all of its data available for free for researchers who apply for it. So tell us about moving from sharing code to sharing data in the web science community. Uh, sure, this, this is a really big topic. Our access to data, especially that which is owned by or stewarded by for-profit corporations is fundamentally tenuous. We've seen you know, the rise of Social Science One, which uh, provides um, application-based access and also money uh, to, uh, to Facebook data. We've seen uh, this more recent initiative by Twitter, which uh, allows access all the way back to the first tweet in 2006 to uh, researchers who apply. But again, uh, even though I, I, I applaud that particular move by Twitter, ultimately they have say over uh, who they accept in terms of this program. That still puts a lot of power in their hands in terms of deciding who gets to access this uh, kind of data and who gets to do this kind of research. I think that any researcher in the web science area should really have what I consider to be a diversified portfolio in terms of the data streams that they're working with. So don't become over-reliant on one type of data to be able to get your work done. So a lot has been uh, written about and said about uh, our field's over-reliance on Twitter data. And so, uh, you know, if Twitter data is your only game in town, well, if Twitter decides, you know, that uh, uh, giving this kind of uh, data access is not in their best interest, or if they decide to reject your application for access to this wonderful, uh, you know, uh, time unlimited stream, uh, then you're not gonna be in a very good position. So having a, a number of different data sets that can uh, speak to the kind of questions that you're interested in, whatever they may be, I think is critical for being a web science researcher in, uh, in 2021. We talked earlier about polarization, and I'm going to use that as a pivot to a very polarizing concept that I would love to get your take on, and that is the notion of being able to infer individual level characteristics from digital trace data. You get people on one end of it who think that that's the most incredibly powerful way of being able to get to things, and others who think that is the scariest idea on the web. Well, this is something I've been thinking about for a very long time. And it's something that I feel like uh, I wish more people paid attention to. There are certain norms in certain fields that don't really think or that not, are not thoughtful enough about what those traces really mean. For some researchers, it seems that simply studying the trace itself is enough. And there's not really a whole lot of discussion about what theories this may apply to um, and what those traces actually mean. So I think that under certain circumstances, certain digital traces are really, really great proxies for things that we really care about. Um, in other cases, the fit may not be so great, but what I really want the scholarly community to do, web science and other social sciences, is to really consider carefully the fit between the, the theoretical concepts and research questions of interests and the data to which they have access. 
What do you see today, based either on your own work or more generally, what do you see as important issues that web science should be addressing uh, moving forward? And again, another really big question. Um, I'll just sort of beat a drum that I've been talking about uh, for a while now. I think that the, you know, the web science community is in many ways not uh, unique among the social sciences in underestimating the uh, importance of identity more broadly um, and race specifically. And so uh, when you're thinking about anything, any topic that web science may, may deal with, whether it's you know, uh, uh, virality or some of the more policy oriented aspects of this, uh, keeping an identity focused aspect of this uh, firmly in mind is really important. Identity factors, you know, which include not only race, but also gender, um, in some cases, uh, sexual identity, national origin, and also in some cases, religion, uh, will really help to uh, give a, a, a fuller picture about what's going on on the web um, and in various digital domains. So that's something I would absolutely encourage every you know web science practitioner to do. Uh, first of all, to read up on it and figure out you know how to integrate that effectively into the work they're already doing. Uh, and then secondly, of course, to, uh, to implement that knowledge. Now, that's extremely important, especially because in some ways, one can argue that the web conceals some of the normal visual surface level characteristics that we would associate with many of these identity issues, not all, but some of these identity issues. Yeah, I mean, and that, and that actually ties back into the trace uh, data issue. So one of the examples that has to do with the uh, underlying concept of uh, gender versus race, when you've got a situation in which gender can be generally, at least um, among anglicized names can be uh, inferred with high levels of accuracy from someone's first name, then the question is, to what extent does the system support the use of a real quote unquote first name? You know, Facebook has it as terms of service that you need to use your first name. So that's a terms of service level issue. Uh, you can use something else, but you uh, risk your, your uh, account being kicked off temporarily at least uh, for that. Twitter does not require you to do that as part of this terms of service and lots of people don't. So uh, you would assume that any study that had a bunch of you know, names of individuals that's on Facebook is gonna have a lot easier time determining people's gender than uh, uh, would a uh, equivalent study on, on uh, Twitter. Uh, now, shift to the idea of race. Uh, race is a lot harder, especially in the United States, to infer on the basis of someone's first name. In some cases, you might be able to do it. In other cases, uh, you may not be able to do it. Uh, and so that becomes uh, a lot harder to be able to, to get. So you know, actually a better example of this is that uh, Facebook actually allows you to indicate your gender. So the, the uh, difference in terms of the identity characteristics that you're able to um, get out of those systems is baked into the design of the system. So that means that some identity uh, characteristics are gonna be easier to divine or to integrate into a research study uh, than others will. Uh, but I think that the effort is well worth it uh, when you're trying to figure out uh, how, for example, different socio-technical systems are used by different kinds of people, how they impact different kinds of people, and how different kinds of people see them. In closing, Dean, here we are sitting in 2021, spending almost a year in isolated, confined environments and uh, dealing with all kinds of reckonings, cultural, racial, health-related, etc. Can you talk a little bit about what this entire experience might have been how it might have been different for better and or for worse if we didn't have the web. The image that popped into my mind was, how would a skyscraper be different if you removed the second floor? Well, the second floor goes away. What happens is floors three through N crash down and they crush floor one. So uh, I think that, you know, taking the web that is so, you know, uh, deeply enmeshed in nearly everything that we do uh, would render our society completely unrecognizable. Right? So it's not like, okay, you take the web out and you go back to the 1980s 
It's everything that relied on that, everything from banking to, you know, getting your takeout with a couple of clicks of an app to, you know, your health to how you relate to others. The fact that we can have this conversation, you know, remotely with, I just don't think that would really be something that we can really imagine, right? We can't put the genie back in the bottle. You know, we have to live with this as it is. You know, I think there are certainly ways that people could use the web better. I think there are, are choices that I wish that certain people hadn't made. <laughs> um, but I think it's extremely difficult, um, almost impossible to imagine our, our current society uh, without the web. I love the metaphor of the second floor of a skyscraper falling apart. I think that is an extremely evocative way of capturing our dependence, if you may, in a very foundational way. Dean, thank you again so much for uh, taking time to talk with us today. I think that your work is extremely important in part because it challenges some conventional wisdoms and does so in a way that uh, really uh, is provocative and advances our understanding and sensibility about many issues related to web science. And I look forward to seeing uh, continued research and insights from you uh, in the years and decades ahead. So thank you again. It was really great to be here. Untangling the Web is a production of the Web Science Trust. This episode was edited by Molly Lubers. I am Noshir Contractor. You can find out more about our conversation today in the show notes. Thanks for listening.